Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Simon Burton from Numero. And I'm Matthew Liebman from Movio. Well, overall, Matt, another good week for the industry. Theatres continue to open in certain territories around the world, some strong grosses across North America, but uh, grosses being dampened in other regions like Southeast Asia and across Australia. And of course, we're a few days away from the opening of the Tokyo Olympic Games on Friday. Yes, Simon, often the Olympic Games is a concern for the film industry and the studios move major releases away from those two weeks, but that's definitely not the case this time round. As we move into the first week of the Games, we'll see Snake Eyes and old hit cinemas coming into week two's Jungle Cruise, Green Knight and Stillwater. Now, part of this might be the time zone. When it's 7 o'clock in Tokyo, it's 3 a.m. on the West Coast, 6 a.m. on the East Coast, early afternoon in Europe. But whatever the reason is, it's certainly not the fearful set of Olympic Games that we sometimes see when it's coming out of the U.S. or out of Europe. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a unique Olympic Games, Matt. Uh, no crowds in the stands to uh, cheer the athletes on. But yeah, we'll see how this impacts the box office over the upcoming two-week period. Matt, what's on the cards for today's episode? Yeah, today I'm going to share a conversation I had with Taylor Hutchison, who's Studio Movie Grill's VP of Film. We talked about the state of exhibition and how dining concepts like SMG lean into food as a cornerstone of their experience. Uh, Taylor's one of the industry's big thinkers. It's a great chat. Before we get into it, let's do the numbers. Yeah, let's dive straight in. Uh, Space Jam, a new legacy, uh, launched internationally this weekend. If we take a quick look at the domestic box office result, a really solid number, I would think, $32 million in the domestic market and a total of $55 million around the international marketplace, led by Australia, believe it or not. So a number of LeBron James fans down there. And if we look at the, the pro rata result there against the, the US result, an opening weekend of $5.1 million in Australia, which generally one to 10 versus the, the domestic market. Mm. So seriously overclubbing there at about a 17% ratio versus the domestic gross. There's a few key European markets to open next week. I think it's France and Spain. Um, and still no no date set for China, which would be a huge release, I'd think, given mm. the, the love of basketball across the, the greater China area. But yeah, I would think a uh, an extremely encouraging result for, for the guys at Warner Brothers with, with Space Jam, A New Legacy. What did the audience look like, Matt? Yeah, look, if Boss Baby played really young, Space Jam's the next age bracket up, and we're seeing that in some of the similar audience overlaps with uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, Toy Story 4, Grinch and Disguise, being those that have the most similar audience to Space Jam. It's also reflected in the age. Uh, Space Jam was almost twice as strong in that 12 to 17 age bracket as Boss Baby, but it was 16% lighter in those aged under 11. One of the other things we're seeing is that Space Jam was 25% more male than Boss Baby. So maybe mums should lobby for professional sports players to be in every kid's movie. Might get more dads to take them along. Uh, also, we're seeing that more audience members went alone or in pairs than for Boss Baby, and this suggests that LeBron's appeal is definitely beyond just families, even when he is in a family film like this. I guess the other one, though, Simon, is Black Widow coming into uh, another week, its second weekend in, in the US. How does that look? Yeah, to, to put it mildly, a, a significant drop from the opening weekend numbers in the US market, where it came in number two for a total gross of $26.25 million, or more glaringly, a drop of 67% mm. from its opening weekend. Uh, and I think if we just compare that with a couple of other 
Marvel comp titles, it's it's a much larger drop. The the drop for Captain Marvel from its opening weekend of $153 million was 56%, and Ant-Man and the Wasp dropped 62%, so significantly higher than both of those titles. Yeah, you know, this kind of reminds me of something one of the wisest industry execs told me about shortened windows quite a few years ago. Now, I should say this person ran one of the home entertainment divisions for one of the major studios in Australia. She'd never worked in theatrical, but what she said to me back then was that one of the benefits of windowing is that it gives fans a chance to miss a movie as it progresses from one window to the next. And that increases the chance they'll pay for it multiple times, you know, directly in cinema or, you know, back at the time on DVD after that, and then indirectly through pay TV subscriptions. And as you collapse those windows, it means that people are more likely to choose one or the other, not both. Yeah, it was certainly interesting to see that Disney didn't update the the streaming results this past weekend from, from Black Widow. Um, and I guess this drop-off in the grosses in cinemas solicited the strongest pushback on simultaneous releases that we've, we've seen yet in the market. Uh, I was also interested to see NATO issuing a pretty strongly worded press mm. release yesterday, which outlined, you know, that aside from the analysis of cannibalisation, it also called out significant instances of, of piracy across uh, across the world. An interesting quote which I, I saw in there was, Black Widow was the most torrented movie for the week ending July 12th. Hmm. And they also claimed that there were similar levels for simultaneous releases previously, such as Wonder Woman 84, Godzilla v Kong, Cruella, uh, Mortal Kombat. Uh, but uh, Again, interestingly, not for F9 or A Quiet Place 2. Yeah, and they also talked about people sharing passwords on streaming platforms. So, you know, not quite the same category. So it would be a a separate set of statistics to what they're seeing there. And uh, that would have had a bearing not just on Black Widow, but could also have had an impact on Space Jam since it was included in HBO Max day and date to the theatrical release. Yeah, I think it's another stat, you know, average 2.3 people per household, you know, a little bit of sharing of, of, of passwords and all of a sudden you're at, at, at 4.6, 6.9. You know, the average Disney Plus household is going to probably have a higher proportion of people than, than those averages. So yeah. you quickly get to some pretty huge numbers. So with all of that in mind, mate, what did last weekend's audience for Black Widow look like? Yeah, look, I've seen a lot of words in the trades comparing Black Widow to Ant-Man and the Wasp. But when we look at the audience overlap, at least, Black Widow is more similar to Captain Marvel. So I'm going to make the comparisons back to that film. From the first Monday until the end of the second weekend, we saw males fall away from Black Widow by 15% more than Captain Marvel over that same period. Those aged under 11 were 40% lighter for Black Widow over this period than for Captain Marvel. Perhaps they were moving into Space Jam. But the women, the female audience was what really held up and they were the key reason for bolstering the numbers to the extent that they did. And it looks like maybe some of those girls' nights out that we suggested after taking the kids to Boss Baby eventuated and uh, mums left dads to take the kids to Space Jam this weekend around. There was one other release though, Simon, Escape Room Tournament of Champions. What did you see from the, the dollars there? Coming in third place, Escape Room Tournament of Champions, following the initial film, which released back in 2019. The weekend gross for Tournament of Champions, 8.8 million US dollars, versus a, an opening weekend for the first film of $18 million. Uh, released at different 
different times of the year. It's fair to say the first escape room didn't have the, the competitive product that, that this title did, but still it's pretty solid result, I think, nine million bucks for its, its opening weekend. What did the, the crowd look like? Yeah, this really jumped out to me that this was a frequent moviegoer crowd with more than two and five going to the cinema on average six or more times each year. The audience overlap kind of reinforces this. Uh, we're seeing films like Forever Purge and Spiral, which have come out post-pandemic, but films like The Turning, Fantasy Island, and Invisible Man, which opened just before the pandemic broke out as well. Um, if I was to compare audience profiles of Tournament of Champions to the original, this one was 10% more male than the original. It also skewed older, suggesting that maybe some younger males especially went to see Bugs Bunny and, uh, and King James this time round. Nice one. Thanks for that insight, mate. Uh, and we're now going to shift gears and move on to this week's interview with Tilak Hutchison, one of the most handsome men in the domestic <laughs> uh, industry. Uh, and he's going to touch on how exhibitors and studios can work more closely together to, to maximise the box office. But really looking forward to additional insights in this interview, Matt. So just after I moved to LA in 2014, I had this meeting with the then head of marketing for Studio Movie Grill, the Dallas-based dine-in cinema concept. And he was accompanied by a guy so big, he looked like security. He was intimidating, he said nothing. And when he sat down, he pivoted in his chair and put his feet on our board table. And that's when I knew I'd like him because on his feet were a pair of RM Williams, Australia's iconic work boots. I asked, are you one of us? He replied, yeah, mate. And it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship with my guest, Telok Hutchison, Studio Movie Grills, VP of Film. Now, Telok's held senior film and marketing positions at SMG for more than 12 years. Before that, he worked for Landmark Theatres and Magnolia Pictures, then owned by Mark Cuban, and is managing director of the American Film Institute in Dallas. In addition, Telok spent 19 years helping to shape a generation of cinema professionals by teaching courses on film, exhibition, distribution, and marketing at Southern Methodist University. Welcome to the podcast, Telok. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a hard trick to follow, Dr. Hughes from Coronation Street, but here I am. Yeah, you can be our first uh, extra from neighbours uh, or home and away from down in our part of the world. Yeah. Hey, look, up front, I want to ask you, what gives you confidence in the future of cinema exhibition? I have true confidence in the future of cinema exhibition. You know, this business has been around for 100 plus years. It's an experience that you cannot replicate at home. No one can put in a big enough screen, the sound system, a crowded room full of people mm -hmm. like you can in a movie theater. There's also a core group of cinema lovers, like people love going bowling. Yep. I don't understand bowling, <laughs> but I understand cinema. And these people will always be coming back into movie theaters. One of the things that we also forget is that streaming was in the marketplace pre-pandemic. It was merely a shifting from DVD to getting your content via streaming. Mm -hmm. And as we hear about all these streamers coming on board, what we have to understand is that there's only going to be room for a couple of these streamers. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be some that dominate and there's other ones who are going to fall by the wayside. Yeah, I think one of the points you raised there that streaming is just the latest manifestation of watching at home uh, is one of the key ones. And, you know, one of the analogies you often hear is that every house has a kitchen, but people will still go out for the experience of a restaurant. Uh, I think in some ways you guys are a hybrid of that analogy and cinema itself because um, of your dine-in concept. Now, dine-in theatres like Studio Movie Grill aren't uniquely American, but they're they're pretty predominant to your part of the world. So I was hoping to set the scene, you could explain the concept and how SMG balances film and uh, food to, to shape the overall moviegoer experience. Yeah, that's a great question. The uh, complexity of running a cinema eatery is unique. Mm. It is not, you're not running a restaurant, you're not running a movie theater, and you can't just put them side by side. 
The one of the big differences to take into account is unlike a restaurant, we have 200 people come in, sit down at one time and want to take all their orders. Mm. And if you've ever been in a restaurant when it's been busy, you know exactly what the consequences are of that is. So how do you cope with that type of type of demand? The public sees this as a movie theater and all the times from the inside out, we see ourselves as a restaurant mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the demands of, of doing a restaurant. The other key thing that uh, makes us set ourselves aside, particularly in the American market, is that we're making the food fresh. So if you order a burger, it's been cooked on the grill. If you're getting a pizza, it's going through a pizza oven. Uh, unlike when I visited, you know, fellow exhibitors overseas and seeing that they're doing rapid heat ovens, this is the real food coming out. Yeah, I think that's a key point. Back in the day, you know, you'd go to one of those sorts of concepts in your part of the world or a theater down here that tries to expand the menu. And the greatest compliment you could get is that was pretty good for a cinema. But those three words can't be tacked to the end of that sentence anymore. It has to walk and talk to the standard of the broader food and dining experience. Uh, I mean, that's that's correct, because we're not just competing against other movie theaters, we're competing against other restaurants as a dining choice. And do you see that sort of bundling of film and food as, um, how's that additive to getting people out of the house than just having the, the cinema itself in a dining precinct next door? How How's the hybrid helping what you do? I think it's a great kind of one-stop shop on a Friday night. You're yeah. not trying to do both. We typically find it with people who have children and they have to have hired babysitters. It mm-hmm. makes a big difference. The other thing is that, yes, in our competitors, you can go get a drink, but you get it from the lobby. With us, you press your button, someone comes to you. That's a very nice thing to have. And in fact, a little piece of trivia about that with kids' movies, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the popular selling drinks is frozen margaritas for the mothers. (laughs) That's brilliant. I've always liked your concept. Instead of, you know, the date night of dinner and a movie, dinner in a movie is a really great way to be time conscious. And and you mentioned that also with the the babysitter. Look, we've, we've gone through a life-changing year or 18 months. How do you think the pandemic has shaped audience expectations as they start to return to cinema? I think for the core cinema audience, the cinema lovers, their expectations have not changed. Mm-hmm. I think for the casual cinema going, it has changed. And the pressure onto the movie theaters is to create an experience that is about comfort and ease. Mm-hmm. And that includes creating apps that are easy to use, seats that make people comfortable, and for some of the traditional movie theaters, they're leaning into the bigger screens, the premium large formats, and they're seeing uh, better results from those. They're giving people an experience that they definitely cannot get at home. Yeah, look, one of the things you say there that jumps out to me is if you go back, I don't know, 10 or so years, it seems like cinema would say they gave an experience when in, in reality they were talking about the unique content on the screen. It was the only place to see that story. Yeah. Everything you talk about there is within the control of the exhibitor. So even if the person doesn't love the movie, they can love the night out because of everything else that's wrapped into it. Hey, look, one of the things that we have seen, obviously with Black Widow most recently, is that shortened windows and simultaneous releases seem to be a new normal, to some degree at least. So what is SMG doing in particular to get people off the couch and away from their devices and into your theatres from, say, a marketing perspective as much as the service? You know, for us, it's all about data. Mm-hmm. It's all about digital marketing. It's all about making sure you're hitting the right customer. It's all about understanding what your customers' needs are. You know, about three years before this, uh, we started, three years before the pandemic, we really started to lean into data. Mm-hmm. This data became more readily available. People were able to process that data for us. And the other thing that we're really doing now is for Studio Movie Grill, so we're teaming up with the studios on digital marketing mm-hmm. efforts. And we're working side by side with them and they're, they're working with us to make sure that we can target our guests uh, with the, the correct digital marketing spends. And that's a, a big one for us. 
But, you know, when we're talking about this, one of the things that, because this is a worldwide podcast that I want to share with people, mm. especially as people come out of the pandemic, some of the unique headwinds that we're facing. The first one is a staffing shortage. Mm -hmm. As theaters are coming out in the US, we're having trouble finding staff. There was this concept that everyone would just come back to work. They're not. And in fact, a lot of the staff that we would have had at movie theaters have gone on to other jobs. Yep. Or alternatively, everyone's trying to hire and there's just not enough staff to go around. Restaurants, everyone's trying to hire. So we're having that. The other one is supply shortages. Mm -hmm. You know, And it's as simple as here we are in a Texas summer. And if our HVAC system goes down, we're six weeks lead time to get parts for some of these parts. Wow. So these are, these are, you know, I just want to give a heads up to people during the pandemic. These are things that we did not foresee coming. And so be prepared for it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about globally, but in the US especially, offering ticket discounts is a bit like crossing the beams in Ghostbusters. Um, do you believe there's a place to use price as a lever to get people back into the theatres? I think it's a very delicate pendulum there. Mm -hmm is that under previous ownership at Studio Movie Grill, we leaned heavily into discounting tickets. And the downside of that is that it's a really a short-term solution. Mm -hmm. Because what you then do is that you set a mindset of the guest that that is the price of the ticket. And you start to attract a discount guest. And what we, we would find is that the food spending of a person who bought a discount ticket was you know, 30, 50, yeah. 70% lower than the person who was coming in for the full movie-going experience. And we know that cinemas rely heavily on their food and beverage sales. So suddenly you're giving up a seat to people who aren't spending the, the money on, on food. You've suddenly also set this standard. I call it the Pizza Hut phenomenon. Mm -hmm. They always send me a coupon. So now why would I ever pay full price for pizza? It's always what's the discount that you have at the moment? Yeah. So people are only looking for the discount. That is their expected, their, their expected price value. You know, if you want to do it the opening week, possibly. But if you start to extend it, it becomes a drug that it's very hard to get yourself off. If you go to use that lever, it feels like it needs to be targeted and with surgical precision as opposed to just blanket discounts for everyone. Yeah. And I did hear, I believe last week, you talked about the concept of online service fees. Mm. And you know that's a dilemma that I've also dealt with because we want customers' data. So why not get them to buy online? Yeah. So um, you know, also previously pandemic under previous ownership, we did run an interesting test where we tested that if there was more expensive at the box office than a buy online, would that shift people's spending habits? Mm -hmm. And we ran that for 12 months out of one of our theaters in Florida, and it made minimal impact. Interesting. One of the things I would say, and you touched on the relationship you guys have with distribution, but generally speaking, I don't think I'm, I'm breaching any confidences to say that exhibition and distribution can sometimes have a, a contentious relationship and maybe windowing will exacerbate that, maybe not. But let's say for a second, you're the Secretary General of the United Nations of Cinema. What would you do to broker ongoing harmony, balancing the needs of both those stakeholders? You know, I think that uh, there's a dilemma that we have in the industry is we always talk about the studios, and yet they are all different, unique companies mm -hmm. with different, unique personalities, different, unique kind of uh, films, and different, unique needs. I've always felt that we're better off taking a non-confrontational approach with the, the studios mm -hmm. and try to work out what is the best the best partnership that we can we can have with them. You know, when we heard of the reduction to the 45-day window and we heard exhibitors get up in arms about it, well, when you sat down with the, the big exhibitors and said, do your number analysis, a lot of them were like, actually, the grocers all come in that 45 days, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And the studios are dealing with the fact that after that 45 days when a film's off screen, they've got this this dark zone of having a film not being anywhere that they're trying to make revenue off and that they can't market anymore. The other thing that we, we encounter is that studios have uh, 
blanket rules mm -hmm. uh, to help them manage because it's easy to have blanket rules for everyone instead of having different rules for different people based on relationships. And they also have blanket rules on films that unfortunately to me date back to 35 millimeter time, such mm -hmm. as clean schedules or things like that. Whereas would I be not be better off to show a movie like coming out this weekend, Escape Room, and give it more evening and late shows, yep. and then uh, have other films do earlier shows, you know, such as Space Jam and New Legacy, which is also coming out against it. Yeah, that's a great point. And something that I know happens quite commonly in other parts of the world, you know, you take a, an R-rated film and give it one day, two evening sessions, a kid's film will balance that screen with a, an early and a late afternoon, and it optimizes the revenue for all players. So uh, I've always found it interesting that it hasn't found yeah. traction in the home of cinema. I will tell you uh, that Without naming the studio, I've already had a studio come to me this year and start talking to me about that idea and allowing that to happen. Uh, it's just whether, once again, it's not one studio, it's whether the other studios say, okay, we'll clear the playing field if you do this for us. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, you do need to be a Secretary General of the United Nations to pull this off sometimes, but it sounds like you're making some headway there. Exhibitors are, are always looking for uh, handouts monetarily from the studios to work out other ways to, to make it. Instead of necessarily walking into the room and saying, how do we make this a great partnership? Mm -hmm. And what do you need? And what do I need? And how do we succeed? Look, one of the things I want to change gears on a little bit is, as I mentioned up front, you've been a lecturer in film, marketing, distribution, and exhibition for a fair while now. What are you seeing is the traits of this current future generation of, of industry professionals versus what you might have seen back in the day? I think that you know we, we've definitely had a change over the last 50 years from back in the days when you had the Jack Warner saying this film is going to be made, this film isn't going to be made. We had the move into the uh, corporate executives, the, you know, the type of Coca-Cola type, mm -hmm. type of crowd. I think it's going to be uh, a group of people who can recognize good storytellers. Yep. It's going to be a group who understands data. It's also going to be a good group who can understand how to weave their digital strategy together into one. One of the things that we do have to work on, though, also as an industry, is what I call the data divide. Mm -hmm. It's the data that movie theaters have and the data that studios have and working there about how we can take that data, meld it together uh, with, the, with the right teams and combine that data together so we can do more effective marketing overall. Yeah, and I think that becomes even more compelling now because in the past, the studios had virtually nothing. Uh, the exhibitors had everything. Now you almost have two sides of the story. What does the one viewer do at home versus in theater? And how do you make sure they bounce back and forward as much as possible? Hey, look, I, I can't leave without asking you to um, recommend some of your favorite Aussie films so that we can uh, introduce the listeners to, to our part of the world. What would be your top two or three? My number one film, you know, Matt, you know this about me. I come from a family that's got a strong military history, so it's always been Gallipoli. Yeah. It's a very moving, very important film for me. Another very important film for me is always going to be Adventure Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It's mm -hmm. transformative. It brought joy to the screen. I'm not going to give you two or three. I'm going to give you a bunch. I'm sorry. Uh, the, Mad Max, the Mad Max trilogy, the whole series. Watch the whole series. It is fantastic. Uh, Rabbit Proof Fence. Mm -hmm. The Piano, which is a New Zealand, Australian, French, French co-production. Very important film. Baz Luhrmann's Red Curtain Trilogy, particularly mm -hmm. Strictly Ballroom, followed by Romeo and Juliet, you know, and then by Moulin Rouge, all very important films, The Proposition by Nick Cave. And then finally, The Dry. Hey, Tillock, um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insights. One of the reasons I wanted to have a chat to you is you, you have a broad perspective um, on our industry from the academic to the exhibition side uh, to understanding the other side of the fence, which doesn't happen as often as it probably should. So thanks for your time. Thanks for your insights. And I look forward to catching up again soon. 
Thanks, Matt. Nice work. Uh, coming up next week, we're going to discuss the opening of Paramount Pictures' Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins, and also Universal Pictures' Old. We'll also hear from Movio's Chief Client Officer, Sarah Luthwaite. like to thank Tealak again for joining us and everyone for listening in. Talk to you next week. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced and edited by Tiana Perez and Grace Furness. Additional insights from Christine Rizzolo and Ryan Preventure.